Hello fellow adventurers, I'm Josie Thompson and welcome to You Can Shine podcast where I explore real stories of real people just like you and I who have faced adversities and trials and won. Today I'm here with Barbara Fordham. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. I met Barb over a decade, maybe two, when she performed in Women in Voice here in Brisbane. From the moment I saw her and heard her voice, I fell in love. Barb Fordham is a respected Brisbane-based vocalist and actress with a voice that has captivated audiences locally and Australia-wide for the past 30 years. She's a passionate performer with natural charisma, beauty, and an honest, heartfelt delivery. She's appeared at many music festivals, toured extensively with the hit shows Long Gone Lonesome Cowgirls and Still Standing for Le Boite Theatre, appeared in short films and in the SBS drama Love Waits. Barbara has co-produced three independent sellout shows for the popular Anywhere Theatre Festival from 2015 to 2017. She's currently having serious fun performing with some of her oldest mates in the R&B six-piece band, The Trespassers. And I'll put the link for that in the show notes for our listeners today. So welcome, Barbara Fordham. Thank you, Josie. It's lovely to be here today. So Barbara, I've done a rundown on some of the career highlights of your life. Tell us the, the real story underneath. What are some of the formative experiences that have shaped your life? One that comes to mind very strong is myself as a four-year-old little girl in a suburban house in Cooper's Plains in Brisbane on the south side, uh, you know, dancing around the lounge room after dinner and uh, saying to my mum and dad, I'm going to be on TV, you know, singing and dancing, trying to get their attention. And they'd be, okay, all right. So what TV show are you going to be on? And I said, my own TV show, of course. You know, and I was, you know, I was just, that, that was my purpose. I just wanted to sing and dance and I found a lot of joy in that. And you remember that moment? I remember that moment. It was, it was a significant moment. I remember it well. So, so what made it so memorable? There's a lot of people that will be listening to this going, I don't remember anything as a four-year-old. So yeah. what is it that, that made it so memorable for you? I think it took me to a place on a cellular level that I felt, I felt that there was this part of me that had the desire to perform. Now, for some people, that's terrifying. Mm. But for me, there was a joy. Perhaps that joy came from the encouragement that I got from my parents. But it was definitely a, a natural part of me to sing. Uh, my dad's a singer. We go back further in our family. There's a lot of singers. Is it in our DNA? Is it genetic? Um, I would say to people, everybody can sing even if it's humming, you know, you know, essentially. Uh, Josie, I can see that you're, <laughs> you're going to disagree with me. Even if you sing in the quiet place in your heart, it's something that brings you joy. And just to sit and, and be with somebody singing. Is... That's very true. And there's a lot of science that actually yeah. talks to the, the harmonics, the vibrations and yeah. the impact of that on ourselves and our capacity to even heal 
Exactly. Oh, and mm. the serotonin levels and the oxygen, uh, what is it, the oxytocin? That's I think right. it is. Yeah. So it's something you get when you, you know, if you're a mother, you breastfeed your children, you get that feeling of mm. pure love. Perhaps that's what I was experiencing. That's, that's what I understood. I just wanted more of that. So that I'm feeling. Curious. I'm curious because there's lots of little kids racing around that says, oh, I want to be a ballerina. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be this. I want to be that. So, but you held on to this, this dream from, from a four-year-old. Mm. Like that moment must have somehow become a reference point for you. It definitely became a reference point in times where I struggled with the idea of keeping on going. Like you say, there's a lot of people who want to be performers, but that journey is very, um, it can have its pitfalls because it's a, it's a tough industry mm. and it's an industry that it's not because you're not talented. It's because the facts are 5% of actors are in employment um, mm. We live in Australia. Our audience base is, is smaller. It's it's getting bigger because we have a global audience now because of technology. But our opportunities to perform are a little bit less because we have less spaces to perform. And mm. and um, so you know it is. It's a really um, you have to be dedicated and you have to be passionate and you have to be driven by passion because there's not a lot of financial reward especially in the beginning. And I remember getting my first acting job with, uh, uh, yeah, it was TN Theatre Company. And I got my first acting job and we were based at the Princess Theatre. And my, I'd auditioned. I was waiting for the job. I got the phone call. I got the job. And prior to that, I'd been moping around and my my dad stopped me after the phone call because I was jumping up and down. I got this job as an actor. It was my first job out of acting school. I was 18 and he said, stop. He said, remember what it was like while you were waiting for the phone call? You were in the depths of, oh, what if I don't get it? And, you know, you, you were really scared. And now you're, you're exhilarated. He said, this is going to be your life. <laughs> do you want it? And I said, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> I didn't really think about it, but that was another significant moment because the ups and downs are, you know, they are they are all the time in the arts. So there was a bit of a journey though between that moment at eighteen and, and this moment at four year old. Tell us oh, what happened yes. in between there. Uh, in between there, I did a lot of uh, performance wise. I did a lot of uh, speech and drama, and I. I did some choirs at primary school, but when I hit puberty, about 12, 13, I started to experience what most teenagers experience. Um, and that was a, a very um, powerful and strong self-esteem low, you know. And if I go back further, that had been influenced by significant moments in my childhood where, I, where I'd experienced abuse. And that abuse had happened when just after where I was four and when I was nine, wasn't from family members. And because we live in a world where we don't talk about that a lot, mm. I had buried that, buried that shame and that guilt. And I hadn't spoken to anybody about it. And here was a little child who was growing and had 
stuffed those feelings of um, self-loathing down and I didn't understand it at the time. It was because we've, we've spoken about it before. My world had been just shattered because my trust and my safety were gone. Was that a decision that the little girl in you made or was that a decision that was forced upon you by the perpetrator that you must not talk about this? It was it was forced on me a little bit by the perpetrators um, pretending that it never happened um, to, to the outside, to the community. Mm. So that was never mentioned. And my mention of it to um, my friends, my little friends, I didn't men mention it to an adult because when I spoke to um, my friends, so there I was going to other children, they um, shamed me oh. and they didn't walk with me anymore on the mm. way home from school. Mm. And so the terror of that mm. was so profound that I thought I'm not telling adults about this because if I lose my friends mm. because I've told them about this secret, mm. then what's going to happen to me? So the child, my little girl made that decision that oh. obviously it wasn't okay to tell people because they, didn't believe you one mm. and um they were going to take action to to isolate you and i remember feeling a sense when i first told them and it's something that i believe in today i had a strong sense of justice mm. so that little girl didn't feel like she'd done anything wrong mm. i i thought this this is this is terrible what's happened is not good and it's wrong so that little girl understood because I came from a family who, who didn't believe in those things. So mm. I wasn't getting any of that at home. Um, you know, there would be other things that I would say that it would have influenced it. Um, yeah. That, that was a real robbing of your, in, your innocence. Mm. And, mm. you know, to, to acknowledge that little girl's pain now as an adult you know, and if you could embrace her in your in your heart, in your arms right now, mm. what are the words that you would gently whisper into oh. her frightened soul? I would say, I believe you mm. and you deserve my protection and love. Now, as an adult. Right, right now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah yes. beautiful. Mm. Yeah, and it's mm. profound to heal from something like that. Mm. And um, tell me, Bob, because I'm certain that there are many people listening to this who have had similar experiences. Mm. How do you even start healing from something mm. that traumatic? Mm. I think, um, and it's been mentioned, you know, um, I, I do like Brene Brown, and, and she put it succinctly that um, shame can't live with truth. So mm. once we start to name it, once we start to talk about it honestly with someone you trust, then you can start to move forward. But before I could move forward, I medicated myself. So that, that little girl made a decision not to talk to anybody and to be brave. I was never going to let anybody do that again, which you know, wasn't, wasn't true. Because so tell us about those, those teenage years when, when you decided, mm. right, I'm going to shut this up and mm. not let the world ever know about this. But mm. inside there was this darkness and this fear and shame. How, mm. What happened in those years? 
Well, I feel like I lived two worlds because I had the beauty and the passion of my performance. Mm. And, you know, I had my mum driving me to a Stedford's. And, and then the other side was this wild, hurt, um, wounded. wounded, angry young girl who mm. on one hand was angry and was very, um, I'm not going to let anybody hurt me. And on the other hand, was seeking love and approval and um, was wearing that wound on my sleeve. So when I was being, when I was acting out or I was medicating, I was putting myself in situations where I could be hurt. So looking for love in all the wrong places. Exactly. That's mm. that, that chestnut. And, you know, <laughs> it can that be that one, that chestnut. So it depends, you know, it's, it doesn't matter where you live, but I certainly know that the south side of Brisbane in the 80s, the early 80s, was, you know, it was a bit of the Wild West for me, you know, mm. and there, were, there wasn't helicopter parenting going on because mm. we were all, you know, going off and doing our own thing. Mm. You know, it's very different these days, you know. And I chose to hang out with people who drank like me and drugged like me. And look, I can tell you that a lot of them were great people who I still love today, mm. but I would seek out danger, you know, and they might tap me on the shoulder and say, what are you doing? Hey, we're having fun, but you're going that extra mile. Mm. And that was my wounded girl. And that was to what? Was that to numb the pain or oh, to somehow? Yeah. Absolutely. To numb the pain to um because of all the big feelings that come along with that all mm. the terrible sadness and the and mm. the feeling of being alone so you channeled that in your music right i did mm. i think the first time i really sang in a way that expressed that you know lady sings the blues mm. was um you know at uh at at, at a party where I got up and sang Stand By Me and everybody, it was some 21st party and I, and I stood up and I sang and people's mouths just, well, mm. jaws were dropped. They couldn't believe it. So mm. here I was channeling that pain. Mm. And of course my, you know, some of my heroes were Janis Joplin, Billie Holiday, um, all the singers who were in the 27th club. They lived hard and fast, but, you know, um, they're misunderstood too. If you look into their histories, there's a lot of intelligence, a lot of mm. woundedness, a lot of ambition too. They're not just the poor, sad, you know, woe no. is me. So you, you, you had this period of, of significant um, upheaval emotionally and, and your, performance, your performances became a bit of a, a way of storytelling mm. what was actually going on in your inner world. What was the catalyst to actually bring that healing forward so that you didn't have this, you know, inner world that was out of congruence with what you were trying to create on your outer world? Well, it took many years of hiding um, mm. dysfunctional behaviour. So I was very functional and I was able to show up at my job, show up at the theatre, um, do everything, even if I was in a great deal of pain, even if I was severely hungover, if I was not showing up and having mm. to make excuses of why I didn't. Um, and it came at a moment where I could not hide that anymore. I came at a moment and it wasn't 
a moment of um, being hospitalised or, you know, and those things had happened to me. I'd been hospitalised and, you know, there were were some dark times in Mm. in trying to hide those very extreme moments. Um, It was a moment where I just woke up. I was with somebody who was potentially, if I'd kept with that partner would have been a situation where I w- would have been in great danger. Mm. Um, and I woke up one morning and just thought, if I don't stop, I will die. It was the most profound moment. Is that, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's a spiritual rock bottom where you realise that you just can't go on. You can't live with it and you can't live without it. Mm. People experience that with gambling or they experience it with food or they experience it with love, Mm. Um, something that they've been medicating themselves with for a long time and then they just get to the point where it is not working anymore. Mm. Nothing is working. And I remember at a significant moment because when I was 17, there there was a great traumatic event that happened which was an abuse event and it was quite public and police got involved and you know um and it was a rape and so that was a significant event and I remember talking to um a crisis line rape crisis and they said to me it might take five months it might take 10 years but you will have to deal with this and at the time I shut it down. And so it wasn't until I was 26 mm. and I'd gone, I, I'd gone many more years and a lot more pain and a lot more joy, you know, within that dark, mm. I had a lot of joy. Mm. Theatre and music saved my life, mm. <laughs> you know, and so in... So they were that, your outlets where you could pretend. They were your outlets where you could get mm. on stage and perform. Mm. No one could ever know what was actually going on behind the curtains, right? Mm. And you will, you know, we hear a lot of people in performance speak about these stories. Mm. And I, I really champion those performers I hear now, young women who stand up and say, this happened to me. Mm. And they have, you know, they're in the limelight now. They're, they're superstars and they talk about what has happened to them. In mm. detail and they and I think it creates a great platform to speak the truth it, it, it's it's healing and it reaches out and it connects those who are suffering mm. and says to them there is hope and I think that's what it is when you lose hope then it's it's terrifying so to not lose hope is to have a hand that comes out of the darkness and just holds yours and says just while it's dark hold on to my hand because there is, you know, there's sunshine behind that dark cloud. There's a, you know, there's light. So whose hand is it? Mm. And what did it take, Barb? Like, okay, you had this moment, this defining moment where you realise this is a, a, a life and death moment. Mm. I have to choose now, mm. you know, and you made the choice. But what did it actually take to commit to that choice Mm. and then direct your life accordingly so I reached out to somebody who I knew Mm. who had walked a path of recovery Mm. so I knew that she had 
become sober. Mm. So that was the first step. Mm. And so I reached out. I Mm. made that phone call and it was the humility um, in a powerful way, not in a humility in in, um, being small, but Mm. a humility of being open and vulnerable and trusting. Mm. So I reached out and I decided that I didn't, want to lose what I had which was my performance it was performance you know eventually I realized that when when the 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 fog had lifted I had all these loving friends and family around Mm. me Mm. who had been my life savers you know had had thrown the lifesaver out of the boat and I was hanging on to it but I didn't quite realize it at the time so to put the effort in was to um, put the drink and the drug down and decide that abstinence was for me, that was my journey. For me, that was the only way I could peel back the layers and heal that little girl and heal those those parts of, of me that had been shattered. And it, it was because I was willing to be re- honest with myself mm. about how I felt. It wasn't about I was being honest with that I'd done a bad thing or I was a bad mm. person. It was about being honest about how I felt because those mm. feelings were scarier than putting myself in danger, feeling those feelings of shame and guilt and, and um, you know, um, lack of self-esteem were just, you know, the, the, the words are darker. I do remember at a, at a moment of great healing because great healing is not necessarily, you know, the white light and we're all wearing white and it's all easy there was a moment of great healing where I felt that I'd really dug deep into a place that was very painful. I thought if this is healing, ah, I had to just have the courage to keep moving through it. Yeah. Um, A friend of mine said, what does it look like? What does that little girl look like that you're trying to help and heal? I said, she looks feral. She's under a table in the corner of, Mm. you know, my room and she, she's hissing at me. Mm. She was so broken. By the time I got to her. Mm. It took a while to rebuild that relationship, right? Absolutely. She didn't mm. trust me. She said, mm. you're going to go and do that again. Yeah. yeah. I don't so, trust you. So, you Barbara, know? what are some of the, the you know, because this, this is a journey back to yourself, back to love, mm. right? Mm. And, you know, what are some of the practical steps that you took that could really help people that can mm. relate to your story right now? Well, I spoke to somebody that I trusted and loved yeah. every day. Yeah. I decided that... Was that um, a family member, Barb, or someone else? No, it was, it was a member in a recovery group. So okay. I, I got a sponsor and I spoke to her every day. Mm. Um, I did have my family and friends, but I put so much pressure on them for so long. I felt that it was time for me to start to do some of the work Mm. Um, I'd leaned in on them for a long time. They were there, but I'd leaned in. And so I knew I was given some clear instructions on, you know, how a 12-step program worked. And for me, it was to not pick up a drink and a drug one day at a time. Mm. Um, It was to go to bed at a good hour. It was to eat well. It was to drink water. You know, it was the simple things in life. Mm. It was eventually to get back to a place where, my health was stable. Mm. And then um, the next step was to work with 
um, a health professional, a psychologist, psychiatrist. I, I found a psychiatrist um, and he was really helpful. And mm. I spent five years in, in um, working with him, mm. you know, which wow. was really valuable. It took me a long time to trust him. But you did, you did, you <laughs> got through there. that. So when was the, when was the next defining moment or transformative experience oh, for you? I think that the next defining cute. moment for a woman is when she has her children. Oh, and, yes. Oh, well, I found my partner, my mm. life partner, mm. and, um, and we both toured together and worked together and, and um, I just knew that I could trust this person. So mm. he was you know somebody I could truly trust and and it was having my my daughter and then having my little boy and that really was that ramped it up I really had to heal because you know you have your little people and I was still you know working on myself and I realized that those little people were going through you know as they went through significant mm. moments that I'd experienced pain and tragedy I was so protective I became mother bear and again my healing went to the next level because to parent them well I had to heal myself so I did yes. go through some dark times as a parent because I didn't I didn't know how to do things sometimes and and it was because it just um, was more work on getting that little girl to trust me that I, I could handle it again, you know. Mm. Um, and it's always, you know, and it and and one step forward to, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Um, you know, the road forward. I would, I never, I don't regret a second of any of the pain I felt in recovery. Mm. I, I believe, it was all meant to be. So what did you learn? What did you learn about you, about life? So I learnt one thing, and I've spoken to you about this before. I, I, I learnt that we are stronger than we, we think we are, definitely. I, I'm, you know, I'm proud of myself. Mm. I'm very brave. Mm. I see a brave woman. Mm. Um, I see that in others as well. And so mm. being on the other side, I you know, I'm that hand that can reach and hold that person and say, I know you're brave, but I know you've got the courage to get through this. Mm. Um, and I've learnt to be kind and to be, if I can be, exceptionally kind to myself because I can't just be kind. I have to be exceptionally kind because of the things that I've survived and that's an interesting place to be. I have to be kind to myself. And that's a daily reprieve, mm. a daily reprieve. I don't, you know, so I've learnt that. Um, I've learnt that bringing it back to the moment is the most important thing to me. Mm. And yeah, that can be yeah, every every moment. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll lose that and I just have to keep coming back to it. Mm. Mm. And what I found is that when you do connect with that inner child that we all do have, but we're not always conscious of it, mm. that as you start to build that trust and rebuild that trust, then you never ever want to break that bond again. No. You actually want to take care of that sense of self. And by doing that, then 
you realize that the person you most need to trust in this world is yourself. That, yes. that little instinct, that little inner voice that comes up from time to time mm. is your inner self saying, hey, this mm. doesn't feel good. Mm. And if it says it doesn't feel good, it's usually because it's not good. Mm. And, and sometimes you can go through, you know, times where you feel, I, I call I and it's mentioned, other people mention it, but I abandoned myself. Yes. So mm. I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Maybe I'm too busy. This is something I've really learned in recent years because of the journey that I've, the health journey I've been through is that I had to pare everything away because so when I'm too busy, I can So let's talk about that, Bob. So mm. your big, big experience was this health crisis that you experienced mm. about a decade ago, yeah? Mm. So in 2012, I thought I had a, an abscess on my tooth mm. and I self-diagnosed. I went to the doctor. <laughs> I said, give me antibiotics. You know, I'm going to the dentist. I've got this abscess. Let's get it sorted. Because, you know, of course, I'm a doctor. Yeah. Not. <laughs> and I go to the dentist and there is no abscess. There is a lump. It's in my jaw. And she takes it. She gets an x-ray in the surgery and then sends me off to get a, a more significant x-ray, rings me straight away and says, I'm sorry, it's not an abscess, it's something more sinister. Mm. Um, it turned out to be, in the end, after a number of surgeries over seven, seven years, it was misdiagnosed initially and then it was finally diagnosed as uh, an aggressive, rare jaw tumour called an amelioblastoma which can metastasize, metastasize and uh, turn cancerous. But the only way to get rid of something like an amelioblastoma is radical surgery. And fortunately for me, that radical surgery has been developed in the past 10 years due to scientific research and development into something called iliac crest flap surgery where they reconstruct your face from bone, tissue and muscle from where in my case, it was my iliac crest, my hip bone, and they take out the tumour and then they reconstruct your face. In the past, it was very Frankenstein. I would have been deformed. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, this so, sounds like a huge surgery and a long recovery. Huge surgery. And so being a singer, of course, mm. as soon as we mentioned jaw, cancer, jaw, tumour, they're going to cut my head off. Everybody <laughs> was, yeah. you know, no, this cannot be you. This cannot be your story. Mm. Um, and I was very scared. Mm. Um, I found a very, I found that place in myself where I was, I had the courage. I mean, I have walked through many dark times and mm. physically, mentally, spiritually and survived. Mm. This was completely new to me. And this mm. was another moment of trusting, trusting science, trusting these surgeons. And I was fortunate to have the rock stars of this particular surgery. Mm. And I'll be grateful to them forevermore. Also the amazing, well, they're the amazing Maxiello facial team unit at the Royal um, Women's Brisbane Hospital, mm. um, who I'll put a link to their donation site because they're, they're Yeah, I'll add that in the notes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. 
you've you've clearly recovered from that now, yeah. Yes. Well, the the prognosis was that we're going to do this to you. It's going to you'll be absolutely crushed, like you've been hit by a Mack truck, seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, it will take two years to really fully get back to full capacity, walking and doing everything and having your teeth back. Because you think about it, they've got to take your jaw. So they're taking all these lovely teeth that I had. Mm. And in that process, there's nerves that get cut, the whole mm. whole mechanism, that the, the blood flow, everything needs mm. to be cut and reconstructed. Mm. So I've only just last year, just before COVID-19, finished my last surgeries. Wow. I skated in, skated out just before the lockdown. So how many surgeries, Bob, over how long? So I've had... I would say five surgeries over seven years, one mm-hmm. major surgery and then two after the major surgery to reconstruct my face mm-hmm. and skin grafts on my arm to reconstruct the tissue mm-hmm. to make a gum. So they had, mm-hmm. to re, they had to reconstruct my mouth inside mm-hmm. before they could put the, the implants for new teeth. So this must have been really scary and, you know, potentially the end of a dream because your only dream, your passion was performing and singing. I mean, mm. how did you cope with that? I, I looked at my life and I thought, okay, here I am being presented with this fork in the road. Mm. What I believe to be that, you know, the, I said to the surgeons, have you ever operated on a singer before? And they said, <laughs> I don't think so, but we, you know, we think you're going to be okay. And I said, but they said, we can't guarantee anything because there's mm. nerves and there's all sorts of things. And if you mm. get a tracheotomy, etc. So I thought, okay, so I had to trust. Yes. And I thought, you know, I have had such a rich life. I have had such a rich journey. If this is meant to be, mm. I will need to express my artistic voice through another Maybe. avenue so yeah. i thought sculpture i'm going to become okay. a sculptor <laughs> i started already deciding okay nobody nobody else yeah. wished that at all mm. nobody you know mm. um my friends and family were devastated mm. to say the least they were bereft what did you tap into within yourself to get through that and the, the threads that, that, that really that experience has to previous dark spaces you've been in, what did you tap into within you? I think it was the day that I, I wish it was just me that, you know, came up with the great idea of, of, of going towards, you know, um, this idea. But it was an anaesthetist and he said to me, I was very fearful this day before a surgery and I was mm. terrified of going under general anaesthetic mm. to go into the darkness, to be in a room where people I didn't know were touching my body. Mm. That was a terror for me. Mm. And he said to me, listen, stop. This is about recovery. This is about you recovering. And it was a light bulb moment. It, it just, it spun me on my feet. I thought, you are right. He was an angel and he wasn't the angel that I expected. Mm. He wasn't smiling and he, he didn't give me a warm hug. He was really tough. 
Yeah, but he reframed your thinking because you did about being, you know, vulnerable again with somebody mm. else touching you. Mm. you know, would have brought back a lot of memory. You know, yeah. your body learns and, yeah. and remembers stuff beyond the logical yeah. mind. And then all of a sudden he's gone, hey, stop that. Mm. This is how you need to think about it. And mm. that was a real turnaround moment for you. Was amazing. Mm. And so every time I sensed the other turning point was my son, um, you know, I was, I was ex- experiencing, experiencing a great deal of anxiety and it was influencing my everyday, although I felt that I was, you know, having a stiff upper lip and I was mm. being really brave and being a great soldier. I was full of anxiety and he, he hugged me. We were cleaning the car. It was just the simple things, you know, we were washing my car. Mm. And he just hugged me and he said, Mum, I don't want you to die. And I could see in his face, mm. he was looking at me in my turmoil mm. and he was trying to reach me. Mm. And I thought, that's it. <laughs> okay. That is enough. You. I won't. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That is it. What, you, what you're going through is real. Yeah. This is hard, but I am not going to fall into this self-pity. And yeah. it's not about not feeling what I was going through. It was about being there. I knew that my children were going to suffer and I knew my family and friends were suffering. Mm. And I could see that I had all this resource. I had my recovery Mm. of many years, Mm. you know, at least, you know, 18 years at that point Mm. of recovery. I had um, my yoga teacher. I had all my friends Mm. who had been through life events that were very challenging. And I thought, I need to... I need to be present here. I got this. You chose you you chose the reframe that you and yes. gave you. You chose to recover and you chose life. Exactly. I chose life. I chose mm. not to be um, in that place where I was going to the end game. Mm. But what I found then when I decided that, then that that place of darkness could be there. On days where I came home and I because I was working all the way through it. Mm working all the way through until I had to lie down for a good couple of months before I could eat and walk and talk again. Mm. But prior to that, I was working and on days that it was difficult, I would just come home and go to bed and I'd, I'd gently say to myself, I know you're feeling this self-pity. I know you're scared. We're just going to come into this little cave and... I understand it's hard and whatever you need we'll do now and then we'll get back up again and keep going. Yeah. So that's about, you know, self-compassion. It was, it was compassion. Yeah. And not and not rejecting those yeah. those feelings of of, you know, those some days that I was angry. Why mm. me? Why why does this happen to somebody? Mm. You know? And it was, and I realized it was self-pity and and instead of being hard, mm. I had to be exceptionally kind yes. to myself yeah, and mm. a beautiful reframe again. So it's all about reframing it. It's not about rejecting the feelings or not experiencing those dark or, or cynical times or whatever they happen to be. Mm. What you're saying, Bob, is keep it real. You know? Keep it real. Keep absolutely. It real. And are there any other nuggets of wisdom that you've learned along the way that could really enable 
and resource our listeners today? I remember saying to myself, I am going to be open and willing to accept any assistance that comes my way. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the person who says, no, 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 I'm all right. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah. Because I realised if I wasn't willing and open that, I, I don't know if I realised it quite at the time, but what I, what I started to experience was things that I never even expected that would enhance my life started to come into my life. By saying yes. By saying yes. I just opened my arms Mm. in a time that I wanted to crawl into a ball and keep really tight. I just was like free flying, you know, free falling. Mm. And I just opened my arms and I said, whatever I need, I will allow it to come to me. Mm. So I didn't have to chase it. I didn't have to find the solution. It it came to me. Mm. And it's something that I try to remember every day and and when you're well and you you're great and everything's great again you can slip back into you know without even knowing but I can definitely say my life has improved I you know I I've walked through that very difficult um life moment Mm. and I am richer for it beautiful I still have my voice yes I didn't lose my voice. And if I had have lost my voice, I would have found another voice. Yes. No, it it would have been okay too. Something Mm. would have come of that as well. I I do believe that. So, Barb, if people want to connect with you and know more, where can we direct them? Well, I would say you could message me on my Facebook page, which we can can private message me and then, then it, can be something that um, is between you and I and yeah okay well what an inspiration and true light you are in the world Barbara you've shown us that no matter what the circumstances you can rise and shine again thank you so much for sharing thank you Josie now if Barbara Fordham can grow from addiction abuse to self-love and show us that we are stronger than we think then so can you I hope you've liked this podcast interview with Barbara. Share your comments below and tell me what you loved about this interview and how it was helpful to you. Help spread the love by sharing the link with your friends so that they can rise and shine too. So until next time, remember, it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's how you respond that counts. Shine on. You can shine.